Welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Moffitt, a prominent and now retired urologist. Leslie and I first met many moons ago, actually many, many moons ago in Glasgow. And through the magic of the internet, we recently reconnected, which was a total delight for me. I'm not much of a user of social media, but that's one thing I love about it. You can meet old friends. And I was even more delighted when he said he'd oblige me by coming on the podcast. Leslie obtained his bachelor's in medical sciences and then his medical degrees at the University of Edinburgh. And for those listeners who've not been, I encourage you to visit what is, well, it's one of Scotland's, but I think Europe's and the world's most stunning cities. Some call it the Paris of the East or the Athens of the North. I think it's both. Leslie's other qualifications include fellowships in surgery from the Royal College of Surgeons, Fellowship from the American College of Surgeons, Fellowship from the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh, and a Master's in Business Administration in Healthcare Management from Scotland's Stirling University. He was trained in Edinburgh, Glasgow, and then served as both consultant in neurological surgery at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and contemporaneously as honorary senior lecturer at Aberdeen University for 28 years. Mr. Moffat produced over 100 publications, two books, was a reviewer for journals, and served in local, national, and international medical leadership roles, far too many for me to list. Leslie speaks French, humbly states that his Italian is basic, but from the perspective of someone who's just come back from Italy and who can just about order a glass of wine and locate the toilet, I'm sure he's much more accomplished. And he's also now mastering German. Leslie is married and has three daughters and two grandchildren and is currently rehearsing the operatic bass role of Dr. Bartolo in La Nozze de Figaro, The Marriage of Figaro, to be performed in Edinburgh at a country house. Mr. Leslie Moffat, welcome back into my life and welcome to the podcast. Well, hi there, Jonathan. Thank you for asking me and it's a pleasure to meet up with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got, you know, if you haven't spoken to someone in a long, long time, it's inevitable there'll be a lot of questions. Some are personal and some are about your experience and your expertise in in urological surgery and the conditions that you've got so many years uh, treating. In fact, when you got back to me, you commented on our recent podcast about the Ukrainian conflict. And I note that you wrote a paper on the history of surgical shock covering some of my points. I love the history of surgery. So can you tell us what inspired that missive and some of the interesting things that you covered in the paper? Well, thank you, Jonathan. Yes, this was really brought about because I was fortunate in getting a job in the shock team in Glasgow. What the shock team was, was a way of transferring critically injured patients from outlying hospitals most of them on ventilators, and then transporting them into the intensive therapy unit in the Western General Hospital. So we'd be transporting patients who were anaesthetized, and some of them were suffering from pretty severe consequences of shock, uh, both of sepsis, and we would resuscitate them first, of course, but once they were fit to travel, we would then move them, and then they got even more intensive care. And so that was the inspiration when you wrote about 
Well, yes, they, they often say there's nothing new under the sun, but it was fascinating to, to follow the, the history and, and indeed the transport of injured people. Great conflicts produce improvements in the transport of the injured. The first use of transport and railways was back in the, in the Crimean War, but the railways came into their own during the American Civil War. Both sides used railways to great advantage. And at that time, there was also the influence of Dorothea Dix, who was one of the first ladies' nurses who uh, supervised the transport of many, many injured people and undoubtedly saved many lives. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think I referenced in uh, one of you my... You may well have... I, I didn't reference uh, addicts, but I did reference the, like, the first ambulances. Well, well, of course, going back to um, the Battle of Waterloo, I think you talked about the ambulance volante. Uh, yeah, that exactly. That was Baron uh, Larré who uh, convinced Napoleon that they needed to be able to transport injured people quickly. Yeah, well, it was very nice rather than just leaving them on the battlefield. Right. So, in fact, to continue that theme, I know that you were a visiting uh, professor to Kiev a number of years ago. What led to that? What took you there? And have you retained your Ukrainian contacts? And I'd also like you, if you can, to address the implications for the population there who are specifically dealing with urological issues and now, of course, there is no health service. Gosh, that's such a such a big topic. But what brought me there was really an appeal by one of the local urologists there who had sent out letters really requesting help and liaison between units in the, in the West and with, with units working in Ukraine. If one doesn't know much about the country, you, you might think that the, the level of medical care was really quite high. But I was quite surprised and indeed horrified about how little they had in the way of equipment. And they did their utmost for the patients, but they were hampered by a complete lack of medical equipment. One of the things about my specialty, urology, is that it's very intensive in terms of uh, equipment. And if you don't have the equipment, you can't do a lot of the fancy operations. You have to do them the old-fashioned way by cutting people open, etc., and one of the things that I was able to manage was I was able to get some instruments which had become obsolete by UK standards, and they were still usable. And so I was able to get them to Kiev and gift them to the departments there. They would have just put in the skip otherwise. Primitive society, trying their very best, and very much with an identity of, it, of their own. They had close links with Russia at that time, and indeed one of the chiefs of surgery had been inducted into the Russian army and had to go and do appendicectomies in, in very Spartan circumstances for the Russian army. But of course all, all that has changed now, and it's just an absolute tragedy for an emerging country to be subjected to this dreadful devastation. Goodness knows how it's going to be sorted out. Yeah. I talked to a number of colleagues in, in Ukraine to understand the circumstances that they're living with on a daily basis. And, you know, hearing from someone trying to do a burr hole for, you know, a subdural hematoma in a damp, dark basement illuminated by a, a, a flashlight, basically. 
Yes. And it's tragic. It's really, really tragic. And like I said, a lot of the conditions that you would have dealt with in your career, Leslie, are chronic conditions. Do you know what's being done for people who are living with something as benign as benign prostatic hyperplasia and, you know, people going into urinary retentional, people with chronic kidney stones? What can be done for these people? I mean, it must be wretched. In general, if it can be done by an open operation, then they're quite capable of tackling it. But not every uh, benign enlargement of the prostate responds well to an open operation. It sometimes can be more harmful than good. So you're right, a lot of people would end up with long-term urinary catheters. The hospital where I worked, it was a cancer hospital, but woefully under-equipped. You asked me about staying in touch with people. Such lovely hospitality when I was there. Sadly, English speaking is not that common, certainly at that time in Ukraine. And my guide and mentor and friend, Sergei, he was killed in a car crash. And it was so sad. And I, I kind of lost track. And I had no way of keeping contact because the rest, their English wasn't good enough to even to send emails. Well, one of the things that I've become fascinated with an old collaborator who I've worked with on a couple of robotic projects, Dr. Yulan Wang and Sharon Allen, is the World Telehealth Initiative, bringing telemedicine to parts of the world where those of us who love to travel and and teach and and operate overseas can't do it. But now we can utilize technology to do that. And I'm sure they're going to be needing lots of help from your specialty. And that brings me on to my next question, Leslie. What took you into to urology? What was the the moment where you went, yep, this is what I want to do? Because the surgery is so beguiling in you know, so many aspects of it. Well, one of the things when I started in urology was that you could be an expert on everything from the top of the kidney down to the, the tip of the penis. And I suppose also I looked at a man called uh, Professor John Blandy's book, and he'd written two books. He'd written one for undergraduates, but also he'd written a two-volume book, a single author, and it was really very inspiring. And I thought, well, gosh, that's really very uh, attractive. And it encompassed quite a lot of different operations, dealing with different conditions and so on. It was very difficult in my day to get into urology. You, you might be surprised at that, but um, there were very few jobs. Pleased to say that uh, it's much easier now. It's still competitive. I, I think also the, the personality of urologists attracted me. Other specialists can take things very, very seriously, but urologists tend to be a more relaxed breed. When I started out, I wondered about doing something like thoracic surgery or even cardiac surgery. But I began to realise that I just wasn't rude enough to do these things. <laughs> I'm actually smiling. But it's true, isn't it? There are personalities to the oh, indeed. surgical Indeed. Surgeons are not shrinking violets. I mean, you can't sort of hum and haw if somebody's got to, if you've got to take somebody's leg off. I mean, you, you, yeah. you do have to be reasonably firm in your, your advice that you have to do something, otherwise the patient's going to perish. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a cross, I think, between a, a degree of paternalism, uh, concern, and all the best qualities that make a good doctor have to be brought brought to bear when you're uh, dealing with patients. But, you know, it's funny that some of the tropes about surgical personalities are, 
are actually founded more in mythology than fact. I, over the last few years, Leslie, I've been doing some projects in neurology, and that took me into a number of advisory boards with both medical neurologists and neurosurgeons. And, you know, the sort of publicly held image of the neurosurgeon is of someone who is crass, imperious, bombastic. Every single one of them that I dealt with were thoughtful, almost introverted. Several have become very good friends. So that's what took you into urology, Leslie. What took you out of it? I'm going to come back to some of the other work you've done, but you left you left clinical practice what why and it wasn't time was it it, it wasn't just that oh you know I, I suppose i was about 62 63 when I, I retired so that was probably about the sort of age i'd envisaged retiring sadly one of the things that sort of impelled me to consider retirement earlier was the way that we'd been become overmanaged and I alluded earlier when we were speaking about uh, being asked to by a, an administrator to, to carry out a vasectomy on a list when I had somebody with bladder cancer that needed treatment. I thought, well, that's wrong. When you're younger, you can fight these things. But you think, well, you know, I can't change the system now. As a younger man, you, you might try and change the system. You can sometimes use different ways of trying to, sometimes even humour, to get points across. But at one point, the person in charge of doing these things, previous appointment as a gym teacher, nothing wrong with that. But you just thought, well, I doubt if they've got a great deal of expertise in running waiting lists. I took a great delight during my professional time that I... Despite shortages of consultants, I never had a waiting list more than about six months long. And generally, we, we were able to cope with every condition, including the vasectomy, including the bladder cancers. And they were all getting the treatment they needed within the appropriate time and adjusted the lists. My lists rarely ran over uh, because I planned them. And I think that's very important. But that, I am told, doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I think you're right. I think people do get beaten down by a system you, that you can't change. There's a marvellous video that was made to promote an accounting, I think it was an accounting consultancy firm in America, and it showed a bunch of cowboys on their horses herding cats and they made a big joke about the fact that it's very difficult to herd cats. But I, I certainly sometimes felt like that. What I wanted to do was see patients in, in, in the office, see patients on the wards or the A&E as it is in Britain or the ER as it is in America and operate. And what I didn't want to deal with was the nonsense that precluded one from doing that. It, it's sad because the people who care, who genuinely care, are being browbeaten sad state of affairs. Well, let's move on to something a little bit jollier, going back to you know, another job that you did for a few years. And I'm always interested in this sort of, you know, looking at the world through a different optic. You were a, a urological consultant to the British Antarctic Survey. I don't even know what the British Antarctic Survey is. Did you have to don a, a nice um, pair of woolly socks and a woolly hat and head off to the Antarctic? No, sad, no change of clothing was required because you mentioned telemedicine earlier. And 
because of the cleverness of the internet and communications now, it is possible to run medical services and give advice over long, long distances. And I think, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I I think the reason that they must have got a contract to do the British Antarctic Survey was to do the medical care for it, was the uh, expertise in Aberdeen on the uh, people working offshore on on the oil rigs. And this meant that we were able to use the telemedicine and give advice when it was required. So I was really just drawn into this, and I wouldn't claim that I did very much. and certainly never got a trip to uh, the, <laughs> the South Pole. Well, a, a very good friend of mine who he's been, I think, some of the most extreme environments, he's summited Everest and was a space shuttle astronaut. And for a period of time, he was similarly involved with the the American Antarctic activities and in fact took his girlfriend down there and proposed to her at the South Pole. So I want to come on to a a major topic and it's of personal interest. My dad had prostate cancer. I've had lots of friends with prostate cancer who turned to me as a first line of advice before I can get them in front of the right urologist. It's something you've clearly been interested throughout your career. You served on the Medical Research Council as the chairman of the Working Party on Prostate Cancer and Clinical Trials Committee of the MRC. You also published a book about the topic, delivered presentations on the case against screening for prostate cancer. Give us a 30, well, actually, no, not 30,000 foot. Come down to about 15,000 foot. Give us the state of the art for prostate cancer screening, prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment. As you recognize, a a great... uh a large subject. But one of the things that happened when people started getting on top of benign prostatic disease of the prostate was that the general surgeons were beginning to rub their hands and say, well, you chaps will be out of a job. This is when drugs such as finasteride came along, which effectively shrink the prostate. But urologists are an enterprising bunch. And of course, we, in a way, invented prostate cancer and started to look at ways of how it could be treated, and nothing wrong with that. And due to the American influence particularly, radical prostatectomy became uh, became extremely popular and became a great money earner for big centres in, in the United States. The uh, Patrick Walsh was the, the main proponent of radical prostatectomy. He was uh, Johns Hopkins? Uh, just so, just so. Right. And um, any urologist worth his salt will have uh, visited Johns Hopkins and been to the Brady, well, it's called the Brady Urological Institute. Um, Diamond Jim Brady endowed the institute because uh, Hugh Hampton Young took about three grams of his prostate away. And so he, at the end of the, uh, once he'd survived the operation, he, he said to Hugh Hampton Young, he said, what would you like? And to his great credit, he, he didn't say a, a fast car or a, a yacht or something. He said, I would like a urological institute. And so Diamond Jim, who'd made his money in the railroads, was able to give him this money. And in fact, he went back later on for money to run the institute. So that's why Johns Hopkins in, in, in Baltimore there became such a centre. And Patrick Walsh developed this operation, nerve sparing. So in other words, you could take the prostate out and men would still be potent afterwards, for the most part. 
So, of course, this became extremely popular. This drew many urologists into operating the prostate, and, of course, there was almost a national hysteria about prostate cancer. And the use of uh, prostate-specific antigen uh, started yielding lots of people who had a high PSA level. And when they took the prostate out, they didn't always find any cancer or very much cancer. So this really then leads to the, the conundrum. How do you discriminate between the pussy cats and the tigers? So in other words, the people who, although they may have a focus, a nidus of cancer, it's not going to kill them. Exactly. And you may die with it, but not necessarily from it. So, of course, trying to sort this out is not easy. One of the things that I tried to push was trying to get the the genetics of uh, prostate cancer checked out because there are certain genes uh, which cross over with breast cancer. And if if you have uh, relatives with breast cancer, you as a man were more likely to get prostate cancer by a certain percentage. Not it's not inevitable in any means. And it's only by taking biopsies of the prostate, and now more recently by doing specialised scans of the prostate, that we're able to work out the prostate cancers that are really becoming more aggressive. The Gleason score, in other words, the, the histology, in other words, when they look at the prostate and the cells under the, under the, uh, the microscope, they can figure out those that are going to start running away very quickly. And of course, these are the patients that require to have their prostate dealt with either by surgery or by radiotherapy. And of course, there are other modalities of treatment coming in now. And high-frequency um, ultrasound was being used, and there are other things. And continue to invent newer ways of obliterating the prostate. We're almost at a stage using current levels of PSA and so on and so forth. We're almost at a stage where we can predict those people that require treatment, and therefore screening is probably getting closer to being a reality. It's been a very difficult topic, and it requires very careful analysis of figures and of survival figures to uh, to work out which is the best treatment. Do you not think, though, that there's still evidence that the disease is overtreated? Yes, I think there is. This is a problem for the American market, particularly where, you know, the, the hospital stands or falls on the number of operations that it does. And so if it's a big earner, a big dollar earner for the, the hospital, there's inevitably going to be a degree of pressure on the uh, on the surgeons to operate more. And there's also pressure from the American public who are keen to have things done. Also, if you go to places such as Texas, not only are they very aggressive in terms of operating, they're also extremely aggressive in terms of chemotherapy for prostate cancer. I think that it used to be, and I'm not sure of the current state of play, but um, it used to be that they would be treating patients with chemotherapy where we would not. Hmm. So I actually, while I was still living in the States, a friend of mine was diagnosed and I took him, uh, he asked if I would accompany him to the appointments and I took him to, well, I won't say which institution, but it was a very well-known institution in the States 
who told him that he needed a radical, a prostatectomy. They also told him that the incidence of impotence and incontinence was vanishingly small. And I introduced him to a British urological colleague. It wasn't you, but next time, it, you know, if you're interested, it would be. And he recommended that he have sequential MRIs and, and biopsies. And he's now, I think, six years out. And the disease doesn't seem to have progressed at all. So how common is that scenario? And also, it's an uncomfortable question to ask. Is the incidence of incontinence and impotence vanishingly small? Because that's not what I've read. No, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't support that statement. Yeah, it, it's just not vanishingly small. I mean, a, a low percentage, but I wouldn't regard that as vanishingly small. And it, it's difficult. You see, the American surgeons, they may well operate on people, but then patients are not coming back to see them. Why? Because they've got to pay to come back. And if the guy's done his prostatectomy, he's he may not be involved in any treatment for incontinence. And the incidence of incontinence, we know from studies here, is much higher than uh, you would expect. And it's certainly far from being vanishingly small. Give us some numbers. <laughs> I'd hesitate to give you numbers now because I, I'm out of the field. But, I mean, you're looking at 20%. Yeah. And it depends how you define incontinence. I mean... I mean, it can be just a few drops when somebody goes bowling to being totally wet. Now, if you're totally wet, then you're going to need an operation to sort yourself out unless you uh, unless you have a catheter put in. So let, let's come at this from another angle. You served on COIN, C-O-I-N, a national committee that formulated guidelines based on evidence-based medicine for the management of prostate cancer, which was convened by the Radiologists uh, College. And that committee produced national guidelines for the management of prostate cancer. So, yes, we've seen less invasive approaches, and I'll come on to the robotic stuff. Well, maybe we'll include that here. What what have you seen over the course of your long career uh, regarding the treatment of this and the impact on the patients who get this wretched diagnosis? First of all, patients need to be dealt with and have informed consent. Um, surgeons who are doing the operation need to be able to keep their statistics and say what their rate of incontinence is and what their rate of, of impotence is. It's all very well quoting the rates from the best institutions, but the average surgeon may not be able to equal that. He may, in fact, be better than that, but it's it's important that you quoting the right figures at people. And certainly phrases such as vanishingly small are, are not representative. And so the the national guidelines are, were very much trying to drive people to concentrate their expertise, to get people who were good at doing it, and try and encourage surgeons to try to branch out and do the things that they're good at and not do the things that they're only doing very occasionally. It was a sort of peer review process, really, that has pushed this. And I, I think it's been been a great advantage to, to everyone to do this. Yeah. Well, it makes sense across all of medicine. Big surprise. You do something often, likelihood is you're going to get better results. 
So in going through the things that you've done in your career, Leslie, some of your research has been pretty groundbreaking. Tell us about the work that you did finding the association between perioperative blood transfusion and decreased survival in both prostate and renal cancer. You were the, you were the first to do that, right? Well, I may have been. This was an interesting observation of these were interesting observations because uh, I had known through my training and in renal transplantation that at the early stages of uh, renal transplantation, we would frequently give patients a blood transfusion prior to getting their renal transplant. Now, that was done not because they were short of blood, anemic, but we knew that it kind of reduced the immunity and therefore the rejection episodes were lowered. Now, this was all overtaken when the anti-rejection drugs became better and better. But it occurred to me that um, if this effect is lowering the immunity, then does transfusion, perioperative transfusion, affect mortality? Now, that you might think is easily checked. It's not. It's actually quite difficult to check this. And you have to uh, try and make sure that you have uh, patients who are all are similar and to have different groups and make sure that they're absolutely comparable in terms of age and survival and so on and so forth. And this led to my interest in trying to equate this statistically. And anyway, we did that. We took appropriate statistical advice and uh, ran it through. And in fact, it did show that both uh, renal cancer and prostate cancer had a reduced uh, survival. Now, I did try and push a study to see if we could use washed red cells, but uh, I'm afraid I didn't get sufficient support at the time uh, to, to push that through. But it did lead to a change because I, I know that um, certainly my anaesthetist and I think others too would either restrict the amount of exp new blood that was given to patients round about the time of operation or could sometimes make a case to get specially washed red cells because it's thought to be the white cell component that gives this immune effect. I remember when some of that stuff was being promulgated and it completely changed our perspectives on how we um, treat cancer, certainly in colorectal cancer, all the things that were being done about minimal touch, ligating veins early on, obviously nerve sparing, it, fascinating, fascinating to go back and read the early stages of cancer surgery to the modern approaches. Truly a fascinating genesis. I know that you were also responsible, you were involved in the statistical analysis of the, the vitamin C data in various cancers. And you were involved in guiding Linus Pauling and you and Cameron in analysis of their data, quite a collaboration. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely fascinating. It's something which I'm happy to talk about just now. At one time, people thought this was a completely crackpot notion. And the idea came about, and it was really Ewan Cameron, a surgeon who worked at the Vale of Leiden Hospital in, in Argyllshire, 
And he had developed this idea that, well, his basic thesis was that you could combat cancer, not by affecting the cells, but by strengthening the grown substance between the cells. Not a crazy idea. I mean, a pretty sound idea. And he looked, they looked at various things to see whether uh, they would help, thyroxin and various other compounds. And then there was a guy called Douglas Rotman wrote to Ewan Cameron and said, are you aware that the vitamin C molecule looks very similar to hyaluronic acid? And this was where the idea came from. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a crazy crackpot idea. It was really quite a well-researched scientific notion. And so Ewan set out at a time when randomized controlled trials were not really done. He set out and looked at various groups with controls. And he had hundreds of patients in this study. And this attracted the attention of Linus Pauling, who, as you know, has won two Nobel Prizes. I met Linus Pauling once, and I, I wish I could tell you what we discussed, but I'm afraid it was very, very pedestrian and, uh, and quite unmemorable. But with the, the following wind of the support from Linus Pauling, we had the, this huge number of patients. And I said to you, and I said, what we should do is we should use a technique, a non-parametric statistic, in other words, uh, anyway, that's a type of uh, statistic that I was familiar with using survival. And we could use the, a logwrite test, which was invented by uh, Richard Pito from Sir Richard Doll's outfit. Richard Doll looked and found the first association between smoking and cancer. Right. So Peter produced this very elegant method of looking at survival of two cohorts. And when we looked, we had a computer system, and it was really quite antique, although state-of-the-art at the time, and you could dial in. It was called Call 365, run by IBM. And I remember sitting one night and thinking, you know, I could run these, uh, these figures tonight, but I can't, I can't do that. I, I won't do that. It's not my data. I'm going to leave it. So the following day, Ewan came in to me and he said, well, he said, that's interesting. He said, there's no, uh, there's no difference between the two groups with lung cancer. But there does seem to be a, a difference in survival in people with liver cancer and bladder cancer. So that was the, uh, the, the basis of these observations. And I think when the dust settled, I think that it's quite possible that the patients that he had were mildly scorbutic, in other words, low in vitamin C to start with, and that might account for some differences. But there have been reviews of the vitamin C uh, thing since then, and um, it's now reckoned that it wasn't just quite as crackpot as, uh, as was thought. Pauling's original idea was that as people had evolved, we just didn't eat enough plants, something which is a notion which should be common amongst vegetarians, I'm sure. And, of course, vitamin C is plant-based, and we can't make vitamin C. So it's perhaps the jury's still out. Hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. Again, a lot of um, vitriol was directed at Pauling, wasn't it, over the years about his ideas 
the interesting thing I, I should mention is that in the early days of this vitamin C, they had a patient who had some form of lymphoma. I can't remember the precise type. And at that time, there was no chemotherapy which would work on the lymphoma. So they decided that they would take this chap in and give him high doses of vitamin C. And they did this. And the patient became extremely sick and ended up in the intensive care unit. And three weeks later, he came out of the intensive care unit, eventually got home. When they came to scan him and check all his bloods and so on, no more cancer. And this was written up in the, uh, a, I think, in the Scottish Medical Journal. So it probably didn't get very much publicity. And it's it may have been uh, what they did to him in the intensive care unit rather than the vitamin C that did this. But nonetheless, it was interesting. But chemotherapy has overtaken the <laughs> potential use of vitamin C as a treatment. Well, you know, I think we have to rethink so many of our strongly held beliefs. And, and, I, and I'm, I can think of multiple examples, but you said it best at the beginning. You said there's nothing new under the sun, which I believe is a biblical quote from Ecclesiastes. Not that I'm much of a biblical scholar, but I think sometimes it's worthwhile going back and, and looking at, at earlier ideas and seeing if they have validity. So my final question is also aspirational. If you had three wishes that would lead to improvements in global health care. What would they be? Well, that was in many ways probably the most difficult question that, that you were planning to ask me. But I think I've come up with three things that I would like if I had a magic wand, as it were, that I could wave. And the first thing would be, um, and it's nothing to do with cancer, but it would be a successful malaria vaccine. Now, I know that there are some malaria vaccines in trial, and if they are successful, that will be a major improvement for healthcare worldwide, because it's still such a leading killer of people, and particularly children, throughout the entire world. My second wish would be that everyone gets access to clean drinking water. And that itself, I think, would be a great boon for global health care. So these things are, are, are not sort of magic potions, magic bullets, which doctors are inventing. They're all very sensible, sensible things. The malaria vaccine is a scientific invention rather than the doctor's thing. The doctors will give them out. But then finally, I had to think for a little while as to what would be the best third wish. And I assume I've only got one or three wishes. But I thought to myself, I think that the best thing that would improve healthcare worldwide would be allowing women access to education. Hmm. Well, I can tell you that your first wish, you're obviously a powerful man because it was granted. I think it was just very recently uh, the first vaccine was approved and the World Health Organization is rolling it out or, or driving recommendations to roll out because, yeah, it kills over, what, a quarter of a million children a year. And your second one, absolutely, it's, it's a disgrace that people don't have access to clean drinking water. 
And a friend of mine said that the way that you stop some of the violence associated with religious fundamentalism is by providing women with access to education that will allow them to lead freer lives. So I'm with you. I think your wishes are marvellous. I want to thank you, Leslie, first of all, for reaching out to me and coming back into my life. And the next time I can get my sorry rear end up to Scotland, I would love to get together. And also thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you. It's been both a great pleasure and a great honour. Thank you, Jonathan. You're very kind. Folks, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. But I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia, and I want to thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.